um, will be in John 17. I'll try to go through as we kind of get the general sense of what's going on and kind of drill down towards the end of what Jesus is praying for uh, and to see his heart. Um, well, one of the things about grace that, that kind of um, distinguishes us is we are uh, a church, one church in many different communities. And in each of our different communities, our different campuses, uh, have live teaching at all of our campuses. And the, the way that we teach primarily is expository preaching. And what that means is we'll just go most of the time verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. So we want to try and just hold Hold a microphone up to God and let him speak to us as we hear what he said and how it applies to our lives. Um, and so we are right in the middle of our study through the Gospel of John as we finish up here Jesus' earthly ministry and go right into his uh, betrayal. And so again, we have um, a couple things uh, coming up this week um, with Lent starting on Wednesday and Ash Wednesday service um, as we prepare for Easter and we begin to move into this final day, this Good Friday of Jesus. Jesus' life in the Gospel of John as well, getting ready for the crucifixion and resurrection. So to kind of give us a running start and a recap as far as where we've been and where we are this morning, uh, Jesus has been in the last few chapters with his disciples. So since chapter 13, when Jesus went and he washed his disciples' feet, he then launched into the, the longest connected teaching we have of Jesus in the Bible um, in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. It's known as the upper room discourse because this was all happened in a room. It's where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper there with his disciples as they were celebrating the Passover feast. Jesus then took it and redeemed it in the new covenant, saying this actually was all pointing forward to me now, um, and that, that we no longer will eat a lamb every year, for I am the true and better Passover lamb that has died once and for all. And Jesus launches into this teaching, kind of giving his disciples these farewell instructions, these final instructions as he's getting ready um, to be crucified the next day. And so we've gotten a peek kind of into these few chapters, into this relationship with Jesus and his closest friends, into what Jesus would give as these parting instructions to his disciples. And we finished that up last week in 16, and now kind of as the capstone to that, Jesus launches into this extended prayer. So on the heels of the longest continuous teaching we have of Jesus, and now in 17, we have the longest continuous prayer of Jesus. Uh, as he, as we see throughout in the rhythm of the New Testament, the word is preached and then prayer follows almost immediately after. The prayer to, to go and set that word on fire and for the spirit to move. And so Jesus now moves into this prayer for himself, for his disciples, and for all those who will believe. And the last Lord's prayer here happened right after the first Lord's Supper as Jesus here prays the fullest prayer after preaching the fullest sermon. And we see throughout this, Jesus has one major concern in this prayer. And his one major concern is that the Father should be glorified through the completion and accomplishment of his eternal plan. That's the main kind of controlling thought that Jesus has. And that plan is to call out a people who know and believe the Father and also believe the Son whom he has sent. And because they know God, they will have life both now and forever. That's the idea that Jesus is kind of parsing out throughout this prayer. And so you can go ahead and flip. If you've got one of the Bibles um, next to you, you can grab it. It's on page 773. If you don't have a Bible, take that with you. That is our gift to you. We're looking at John 17, verses 1 through 26 this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, 
Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I have had with you before the world existed. Now, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you had given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So we see this long prayer and this long chunk here as Jesus prays here at the end of his earthly ministry. And there are three big sections that he prays for. He prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. He prays for his disciples in verses 6 through 19. And then he prays for all believers in verses 20 through 26. So those will be the three sections we'll be looking at as Jesus prays for himself, prayer for his disciples, and a prayer for all the believers. We'll go through kind of quickly. Since this is larger, I want to make sure we cover all little pieces in there. Um, but I want to focus in towards the end as Jesus prays for all uh, those who would believe. So in any of this, I'm going to be skimming over. We're getting the 40,000 foot view. We're going to see the forest 
we're going to miss some of the trees. So if you've got any questions, just come shoot me an email this week. Grab me afterwards. We can talk about it. But at the beginning, Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. He prays for himself. And we see there are three kind of pieces within this prayer Jesus prays. He prays for glory. He prays for purpose. And he prays for knowledge. He prays for glory. He prays for purpose. And he prays for knowledge. And the way that this prayer is set up, it looks almost like a little mountain. Is he prays for glory in verses 1 and 5 at the beginning and the end. And then in verses 2 and 4, he prays for purpose. And at the very top, in the middle, he prays for knowledge. And so the way that he prays, you see that the whole prayer kind of focuses in on verse 3 and on knowledge. As he prays for glory, he says, Father, the hours come, would you glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you? We see a bit here of the relationship of the Trinity. As Jesus is praying, would you lift me up so that I can lift you up? And the Holy Spirit has been sent to glorify Jesus, to lift him up. And you see this relationship within the Trinity. There's this tri-unity amongst these three persons as they are constantly trying to glorify one another. And Jesus is praying, would you glorify me so that you would be glorified? Jesus' concern here is that the Father would be lifted up and glorified. But secondly, we see the the purpose that he's praying for in verses 2 and 4 is that you have given Jesus authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So Jesus' purpose, he came on earth, was to give life. And this was John's purpose throughout the whole book. We see in the very end, in John 21, he says, the reason why I wrote this book is people would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in his name, you would have life. And here Jesus is saying, the reason why I was sent was to bring life eternally and today. And that as he was glorified, he has accomplished the work that he gave me. But verse 3, it all kind of leads to this verse 3. Look at this. Jesus then defines what this life looks like. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. So Jesus here is saying, "I, I was sent. I'm praying to be glorified so the Father would be glorified. I've been sent to give life. What is life? Eternal life is knowing God. It's knowing him the only true God. And this word in the Bible is a little bit different than how we use it. As we say, no, it's like, hey, do you know who Justin Bieber is? Like, yeah, I know Justin Bieber. That's not quite how Jesus means it here when he uses the word no. There's a far more intimate relationship involved when we see this word in the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see it often with Adam and Eve. We see Adam knew Eve and they had sons and daughters. That's a different kind of knowing than how I know Justin Bieber. There is a very intimate relationship there. It's the most intimate of relationships humans have with one another. As they know one another, there is this intimacy to know and be known. They are naked and unashamed. And there is this relationship and intimacy. And Jesus is saying that eternal life is knowing and having an intimate relationship with the Father. It's knowing Him. And so in the fall, we see as as mankind rebels against God, one of the things that is fractured is a relationship with him. They are cast out of his presence, and that relationship is broken. And so it should be no surprise to us that when Jesus comes, he's come to restore that relationship, that we would know him again, and that having a relationship is at the very core of what Christianity is and knowing God. And so it's one of the reasons why we will try to, in sermons and in songs and have classes that teach us about the character and nature of who God is. We want our minds to be informed. We want to know God because we think in knowing him, that then fuels our hearts. 
So one of the things we want to strive for is to have both informed minds and inspired hearts. That we know him, and as we know him, we begin to love him more. And as we love him more, we want to know him more. And those two things play back and forth with one another. And so we're not scared of words like doctrine and theology. Because as we study God, which is what theology means, as we begin to know him, that begins to grow our relationship with him. And that is how we experience life, both today and for eternity. That that is eternal life, that we know the only true God. And so this is why Jesus has come praying that he would be glorified to come to bring eternal life. And this is eternal life, that we would know God. But notice how short this section is, just five verses, the shortest section of all three. Jesus moves on pretty quickly. And even as he prays for himself, he doesn't really pray for himself. He prays for the Father to be glorified, that those would know him who come after him. And he moves on. Jesus is remarkably self-effacing as he's looking out to the people around them, trying to lift them up. He then moves on in verses 6 through 19 as he prays for his disciples. He prays for his disciples next. And he prays both that they would be affirmed for their faith and also that they would be kept for their mission. He's praying for his disciples. He prays that they would be affirmed for their faith and also kept for their mission. And as he's praying in verses 6 through 10 for them to be affirmed for their faith, he's trying to pray and encourage them, saying that the faith that these disciples have, these 11 men who are left, their faith is true. It's reliable, it's genuine, it's authentic. And the reason why he can say that is he says that their faith is true both because of God's initiative in their life and because of their response to God. Both of those things are the reason why they are true disciples. Look throughout, we see God's initiative throughout in the disciples' life. Look at verse six. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So Jesus comes and reveals who God is And God is the one who takes them out of the world and gives them to Jesus. Verse six, again, you gave them to me. Verse eight, I have given the disciples the words that you gave me. And verse nine, for those whom you have given me. And so we see God takes the initiative in this relationship as he takes and he gives us to the son and the son then holds us. He keeps us. That the affirmation that we have in the authenticity of our faith relies on primarily not in our desire, not in our actions, but in God's initiating love towards us. That's the root of your assurance. Because listen to me, the moment that you begin to look at your life to try to find assurance, you're going to be up and down your whole life. Because I'm pretty sure you're probably as fickle as I am. And that's why I think one of those hymns that I love the most is uh, Come Thou Fount. And there's this one line in there that says that we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And I think the reason why I and so many people connect with that line is because we go, finally, a worship song that's really honest, that we can sing and mean with our whole heart because I know the depths of my heart and I know that I'm prone to wander. That's our bent, that when we step back, we don't drift towards godliness. We drift away from him and we are prone to wander. And so if, our, if we are trying to find assurance when our faith is weak and we're looking around us, friends, it will be remarkably thin. But when we step back and look as Jesus is praying here for the affirmation of the disciples' faith, he begins with God's initiating love. And that's why we sing songs like, he will hold me fast. For when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. 
That's the foundation of our assurance. He is the one who is keeping us. There is no one who will snatch us out of his hand, not because of how tight we're holding on to him, but because of how strong his grip is around us. It's the same thing Paul writes in Philippians 1.6 as he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good at work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now friends, where are we in that verse? We're the ones being acted upon. That God who began a good work in you, he's the one that started it. He initiated towards you. He is the one who will bring it to completion at that day. He will hold us fast. He has taken us and taken us out of the world and given us to the Son. And so God is initiative towards us. That's the foundation of our assurance. That doesn't abscond us. I don't even know if that's a word. For some reason, I just want to say abscond. And I think that's the right word. If not, don't worry about it. It sounds like a French croissant or something. Let's just, (laughs) anyway, because God initiates towards us and works in us primarily, that does not remove, that's a more English word, that does not remove us of our responsibility to respond. And so we see the other reason why Jesus is affirming their faith is not only God's initiative, but also their response. Look at verse six. Jesus says, they have kept your word. Verse seven, now they know. Verse eight, they have received your words. And verse eight again, they have believed that you sent me. So as Jesus is affirming their faith, he's saying, you are the one who has taken them and given to me, but also they have kept, they know, they received, they believed, they responded to that love. And so both and, we do not have to choose one or the other. And you go, how's that possible? I say, listen, God is God and he's a lot bigger than us and can do things that we don't always understand. If I had a God I could completely understand, that's not a God I would wanna worship. And so he comes and Jesus here doesn't have to try to explain away the tension. He said, God has given them to me and I keep them. But also they responded. And this is the faith that they have, that they could be affirmed their faith is true and genuine. There's also another sense here. Look at the way that Jesus is talking about his disciples. As he's exalting them, commending them, complimenting them, pointing out the authenticity of their faith. They've kept your word. They know. They've received. They believed. And remember, remember where this is in the context of the story of this week. In a few hours, every single one of them is about to abandon them, they're about to leave. And Jesus knows that. Just a few hours before, he told Peter, hey, Peter, I know that you're all like big talk and everything. If you had a Twitter, Peter, it would be dangerous. Um, And you are talk, but listen, Peter, before the night is over, you will deny me three times. And every one of you else, they're saying, oh, now we believe. We saw this at the end of 16. The disciples go, oh, now we believe and know that you're sent from God. Jesus goes, listen, now you believe? You're about to leave, scatter back to your own homes. You're about to abandon me. So Jesus knows what they're about to do in minutes. And look at how he talks of his disciples. He is lifting them up. He sees the faith as small as it may be. He sees it in their heart. And he is lifting them up and commending them. He sees something in them that maybe they even themselves don't see. It reminds me of um, a show we were watching after the Super Bowl. I don't know if you've seen the show, This Is Us. But if you like crying, this is the show for you. Um, they, they just, they have a way of taking your heart, ripping it out, throwing it on the ground, stomping on it. You think it's over and they just keep on stomping for some reason. 
But it's excellent. I know that's a great description. Everyone who hadn't seen it want to go see it now. But the, they had this spot after the Super Bowl, the prize spot of the, the show after the Super Bowl. And in it, they flash back and forth between different life stages of a family. So they go back when they were kids, then forward when they're older and adults and all throughout. And there was this one scene of a teenage girl who was wanting to uh, apply and try to get into this music school. And she had to make this uh, recording of herself to send in whether or not she could accept it. And she was insecure about how she looked, and so she didn't want a video, she just wanted to record it. And her dad kept telling her, no, listen, Katie, if you sing, that if, you, if you sing and they see you, then they'll accept you. And she just didn't want to hear it. And he kept saying, no, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. And finally, she turns and gets mad at him. She said, dad, stop talking to me like that. Stop saying those things. Stop telling me how beautiful I am because I know that I'm not. Would you stop? And there's this dispute and the father just kind of pulls back and he's like, okay, I'll, I'll stop. But earlier that day, he had a video camera that he had kind of snuck into her room and was recording her as she was singing. And in the video, you see a mirror reflection of his face as he's watching. And Katie, later that day, she went and she found the tape. She put it in and she saw her singing. But then all of a sudden, she saw her father's face as he watched her singing. And there was this smile that came on his face and she'd never seen anyone look at her like that before. And she went back to him and she said, please don't ever stop because you see something in me that not even I see. And me, I'm watching that and my daughter's 15 months old. All of a sudden I'm like fast forward into like all these emotional conversations I'm gonna be having with my daughter and telling her I've got this old VHS camera trying to recreate the moment. Like <laughs> you, I look at you like no one else can. And the reality is that Kate's saying that there is no one who looks at you, at me like you do. You see things in me that not even I see. And friends, listen to me. It is so much more as Jesus Christ as he looks at us. That when we, when we are at our worst, even when we are minutes away from abandoning him, Jesus looks and he is exalting. He is lifting up. He is commending his disciples. Because even the little bit of faith that they have, he sees it as true and precious. And it's clear that he sees far more in his disciples than they see in themselves. And friends, you can believe that Jesus sees far more in you than you can see in yourself. And I pray that the Father would never stop looking at us like that and that he would give us glimpses of how he sees us. Even the smallest bit of faith is precious in his sight. As he affirms his disciples' faith, lifting up both God's initiative and their response, he then moves on in 11 through 19 as he's praying that they would be kept for their mission then. And he prays through a number of things as he's praying for them as they're gonna be sent out. He prays for their protection and unity in their mission. He's praying they would be protected, verse 11, that, that God would keep them in your name. And that, that name, that, the way that the Bible uses the word name, being kept in your name or doing something in the name of someone, it encapsulates a person's whole character and work and action. And so as Jesus is praying for the Father to keep them in his name, he's praying, God, every way and bit of character of who you are and your attributes, would your name keep them? Would you come and protect them? Verse 12, he says, I have kept them in your name. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. In verse 15, he says, would you keep them from the evil one? He's praying for their protection as they go out into the world. And not just their protection, he also prays for their unity. Verse 11, he prays the disciples would be one even as we are one. We'll pick this back up in a little while, so we'll gloss over it and come back uh, at the end of the chapter as he prays for all believers. But he prays for their unity. He also prays for their mission. Well, what is their mission? 
Right? Have you ever wondered why, well, if, you, if you believe in Jesus, why at that moment you aren't just taken up, like beamed up like Star Trek into his presence, but why we're still here? Jesus tells us here why we are still on this world and not presently with him. Verse 11, he's saying the disciples are in the world. Well, is he going to pray for them to be taken from the world? No, verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but for them to remain. Well, what will they do then while they're there? Verse 17 and 19, they would be sanctified in the truth. So while they remain in the world, they would be sanctified in truth. And that word sanctified, it's the same root word as the word holy uh, in the original Greek. It means to be set apart or to be made holy. So there's certainly moral overtones, but there's also a sense of a holy God making his people like himself, both in purpose and in mission, as God is setting apart people. He's sanctifying them. And this later idea is the one that's felt here in this prayer. Jesus is here setting his disciples apart for the task of going into the world on mission, to remain there and to go and take this gospel to the ends of the earth. He doesn't ask God to remove them from the world, but instead to protect them and their unity as they remain in the world. And so as Christians, we're not meant to withdraw from the world, all move into monasteries, but we're also not told to become indistinguishable from the world. If we as a church begin to look no different from the world, then friends, we're doing something wrong. We are not sanctified. We are not set apart But in the same sense, we're not just supposed to get into this little country club and go, oh, I'm so glad now that I don't have to deal with the problems of the world and we're just never going to interact with them. Jesus is saying, no, they are to remain in the world as they go to be sanctified and set apart, to live in the world, helped by the Spirit, to then in turn help people take their next steps towards Christ. That's why we're still here. That's why we weren't just beamed up immediately, is to continue this mission that Jesus sent his disciples on. But third, we see Jesus not only prays for himself, not only for the disciples, but look at verse 20. He also prays for all believers. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning his 11 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So just take a moment this morning and realize what you're reading. That as you read this, God, God incarnate, the Son of Man, is here the night before he's betrayed and crucified and killed and he's praying for you. As we read that, we see that he prays for all those who believe in me through your word. If you believe in Jesus this morning, Jesus is praying for you. This is his prayer. And his prayer is in two different senses. He's praying that that those believers would dwell with each other in unity and secondly, that they would dwell with Jesus for eternity. They would dwell with Jesus in eternity. And so we, we, I, I want us to, to pause and kind of think, if this was, if we were just reading this for the first time or ask on a test, if you were to say, okay, Jesus has come to accomplish this mission, this eternal plan of redemption from God to call out people and restore them to relationship with him. This is the night before that kind of ultimate task takes place of the cross. This is Jesus' final prayer. He's actually going to pray for all the believers throughout history. What do you think he's going to pray for? How would you answer that? I've already told you the answer, so try not to think about that. But how would you think Jesus would pray? Probably praying for effectiveness, that there would be fruit, maybe that God would bring him really talented individuals to keep them from harm, that this would 
um, cover the entire world? Maybe, but it's interesting to me, it strikes me that the theme that is most prevalent throughout Jesus' prayer for the church is the church would be unified. We hear this throughout these six verses. Jesus prays that they may all be one in verse 21. Look at verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. So not just this sense of like feel-good unity. He now takes it even further and says, Father, the way in which we are one, the Father, the Son, this Trinity relationship, I pray for that kind of unity for the church. Verse 23 takes it even further, that they may be perfectly one. So in these few verses, Jesus is relying heavily on this prayer that they would be unified, that they would be one. And we see together with love, as Jesus says in chapter 13, 34, 45, chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, and later in chapter 17 here in verse 26, that love together with unity are the vital prerequisites for the mission to the church. They are the two pillars of, Um, cornerstones in which the foundation of the mission of the church is laid on love and unity that they may all be one even as we are one so Jesus is radically concerned with the unity of his church and not just again not just a feel-good unity where it's like you know what we disagree entirely with these people we believe they're teaching something that's dangerous, but we're going to try to be one because this is what we see. No, the unity relies not in feel-good emotions. The unity relies in truth, that they would be one in us. And so the unity of the church revolves around the truth. So we are one in as much as we all believe the same thing, but in that, Jesus is radically concerned about the unity of his church. It's one of the reasons why the apostles are so dead set against divisiveness. Have you ever read throughout the New Testament the way in which the disciples, the apostles talk about people who are divisive within the church? It's some of the most harsh language that they use. And you may go, why? That seems strange, like gossip or causing division. It's not that big of a deal. Well, it is when we see that this was Jesus' primary concern for us to be unified. And so one of the things that I pray for for our church, at Grace as a whole here as a campus, is that we'd be a church who's unified who is, has diversity, but there's a unity in the midst of that diversity, that we would be one. And so there will be, listen, there will be times where you will have problems with this church. I'll go ahead and just let that cat out of the bag. You know why? Because we're all humans. We breathe, and so we're going to make mistakes. But as we do it, we see here that God has given us ways to deal with that, with issues within the church, with issues with relationships. We come to them first. Jesus tells us, Matthew 18, you have a problem with your brother, come to him. So our tendency is whenever we have an issue with somebody, we want to go and tell everybody else. But Jesus says, no, go first to him. And if they're reconciled, then that's the end of it. It doesn't spread, it doesn't cause division. Gossip doesn't begin to spread throughout the church. But we then deal with things directly. Listen, somebody did this last year as they came to me and they were like, listen, I'm a little concerned about Ash Wednesday. I don't really understand it. I didn't really do it. And he could have gone and begin to talk to other people about it, kind of creating this uncertainty amongst the church. But instead, he just called me directly and said, hey, I've got questions. I'd love to talk to you. And we sat down and we talked through it. And I went, brother, thank you so much for handling this the way you did. It's so different than how most people do. But it is taking this prayer seriously to be committed to the unity of this church so that when we have issues, we come to one another. And we are not a church that's going to hold things from you. We want to be transparent. We want to walk together, both to help see why we're doing things, but also for you guys, 
I need your help because I am not perfect. I am not infallible. And so as you come and you begin to say, hey, I'm a little concerned about this, either I'll say, well, here's why we're doing it. And you'll go, oh, that's so great. Or I'm able to see, oh, that's a great point. I need to change that. Thank you so much for bringing it up. It's the body working together because we are one body. And I'm not the head. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And we are here underneath him working to keep this thing together, to pray for and love one another, especially people who are different from us. It's one of the reasons why I pray hard that Jesus would bring people that look different from one another here, whether it be in age or ethnicity. I pray that God would bring people with different color hair and different colored skin so that we could come together and love one another in the midst of that diversity to have this kind of unity. Because when that happens, people from the world walk in here and they go, hold on, these people shouldn't be hanging out together. These people shouldn't be loving one another. There should not be this type of family. This guy shouldn't come up and start tearing up, talking about how much he loves because we look out here and they look far different from him. But listen, that kind of unity is compelling to the outside world. That kind of unity speaks to what we have in common in the midst of all of our differences. Because I can guarantee you, we like different kinds of movies, different kinds of music, and different kinds of sports. But the thing that keeps us together transcends the things that separate us. The gospel of Jesus Christ creates a community unlike this world has ever seen. And it's in the midst of political unrest and racial unrest that we can begin to come together and be countercultural and hold up this community that the world will look at and go, that feels right and I can't put my finger on why it works. And as we say that, we're able to say it works because of the one who has saved us. And there is ultimately a day when we will be standing around his throne with every tribe, tongue, and nation singing his praises. And because that is true then, then we can in part take part in that today. And so that unity actually speaks towards evangelism. And this is exactly what Jesus says as he prays for their unity. He prays both for their unity but also their evangelism. Look at verse 21 and 23. Jesus connects the two. He says that they may be one so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Or verse 23, I pray that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. So Jesus is the one connecting it, saying that when the church is unified, the world then starts to believe that there's something different that begins to point them to Jesus. So Jesus is still drastically concerned with the evangelism of the world. And so he prays for their unity, that they would dwell with each other in unity. And lastly, in 24, 26, he prays that they would dwell with Jesus in eternity. Look at verse 24 as Jesus prays, he says, Father, I desire that they also, talking about every Christian, every person who's believed, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. So Jesus' prayer here as he finishes out is for all of the Christians who believed in him to see him face to face, to be with him. And it's unbelievable to me as Jesus is here on this night before he's betrayed, arrested, tortured, crucified, and all of that paling in comparison to the cup of wrath that he will go and drink as he stands in the place of everyone who's ever believed and takes on himself the punishment for our sin and absorbs that wrath for us. And listen to me, he knows exactly what's coming for him the next day he knows what he's about to experience and in the midst of that knowledge being 
hours away from the worst kind of pain that any human has ever experienced. Do you know what Jesus is thinking about in this prayer? He's thinking that he cannot wait to see you face to face. As he prays and says, Father, I pray that they may be with me where I am to see me in glory. He cannot wait to see you. Not in prayer, not through his word, but to be with him, to see him in all of his glory, his divinity, his humanity removed, and we see him in all of his divinity, in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, and we will forget the pain of our lives, and we will stand before the lamb who was slain perfectly and beautifully, and that relationship will be restored, and there will be nothing separating us from him. Jesus says, I cannot wait for that day. So no matter what picture you have of God in your mind, we need to understand who God really is and how he sees us. That God is praying for you. That Jesus Christ is thinking about you. That Jesus Christ cannot wait to see you. Not because you're perfect, not because you're lovely, but because he loves you. And this is incredible encouragement to us. Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18. He writes to the church there and says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words that we will always be with the Lord. Take encouragement in that reality that we will dwell with Jesus for eternity. So if you want to see what people care about, just listen to them pray. It will show us what's on their heart. And here we see Jesus just hours away from being betrayed and crucified and bearing the full weight of the wrath of God in our place, not even really praying for himself. He's praying for the eternal plan of the Father to be accomplished through sending his friends into the world. On the night before the greatest pain that any human has ever gone through, Jesus had you on his mind. Friends, don't just gloss past that. Understand what it is that Jesus cares about. As he was praying that we would be unified to be a part of this redemptive plan of the Father to reverse the effects of the fall and calling together a people who will be with him forever. This was Jesus' priority. And friends, if this is the, his priority and it's his major concern and chief goal on this earth, then it should be ours as well to be a part of this redemptive plan, to live missionally wherever we may be, whether that's in the greater plains of Africa or in the greater hills of Claremont, that we may be a church that cares about what Jesus cares about, glorifying the Father by helping people take their next steps towards him. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you so much for being a God who has come to us to save us. God, help us to live with this light and this reality that we be a people sent by you to love you and to live for your name. God, help us to be able to take the truths of this prayer and begin to live it out in our own lives and give us the heart and the desire to be with you and carry on this mission that you've called us to. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.